Is it on? All right, then it's on. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Naomi Bliven from Penn's Executive Board, and I'm here to welcome you on behalf of the Penn American Center. And we have had a tradition of evenings such as these, and I want to borrow the phrase from uh, the late Harold Rosenberg, it's our uh, tradition of the new, and an established writer introduces a younger writer, or since nobody is very old, perhaps a less well-known writer, and in the past, uh, many people who appeared here uh, went on to publication and fame, though I don't know about fortune. Uh, but anyhow, I think on this night when the skies are covered over in a year uh, in which many of us have been disappointed in our hopes of seeing Halley's Comet, you have a very good chance of seeing some stars. And we're going to begin now with the poet I, who will introduce uh, the poet Robert Polito. Uh, I. I don't excel at memorizing poetry, although I went to Catholic school and was taught to memorize many things. Um, so I'm just going to read this from the page, which begins, it is a pleasure, and it is a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me to introduce Robert Polito tonight. He is an assistant professor in English at Wellesley College and comes to us with all the accoutrements including a doctorate from Harvard. His poetry has appeared in many magazines, including The New Yorker, Plowshares, and The Yale Review. His essays and criticism have appeared in Boston Phoenix and The Boston Review. He is currently working on an index to Merrill's Changing Light at Sandover, as well as writing a critical book on Lowell, Merrill, and Ashbury. Before I read his work, it was described to me as being in the tradition of James Merrill, and it was meant as a compliment, and it is, but I think Robert's poetry is also his own and stands on its own. The people and, situ excuse me, the people and situations in the poems arrive at their appointed or unappointed destinations as if by magic, though an engineer of great skill has guided them there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, since this is my first out-of-state out of reading, I thought I'd like to begin with a poem that's set on Washington Street in Boston. For those who aren't familiar with it, Washington Street begins in the financial district and runs through a shopping center and then ends up in the combat zone. And the poem's about my grandmother. <laughs> um, Nana. Sunday evening, the downtown shut up. 
above the arcade of stores and stands blazing overtime. Sodium vapor lamps pick out a few hand-holding couples. In from the suburbs or drifted down from the public gardens, busily checking their reflections in display windows, whose fierce mannequins, hands on hips, and this year proud as prized Japanese carp in spotted kimonos, trailing silks and fans, tilt back their necks to mock her heavy metal t-shirt and iron jeans, his drooping belly and gold chains. On my way to drinks and dinner in the North End, I duck past Arch Street Chapel and almost knock down an old woman. Steadying her, recovering her squat purse, leather missile and splayed holy cards, her salvation, her many dead face up on the sidewalk. Mrs. Kearney, my grandmother's oldest crony, in her 90s and still, according to my mother, battling the local toughs who heave beer cans on her lawn? No. Airy veil hairpinned to her curls, in a long dress dense with lilacs, thick flesh-colored stockings, rosary wound twice around her left wrist. She could be Nana, not dead these 17 years, but walking away from her second mass of the day. When grabbing after the tail of the senile mongrel I sensed you loved only a little less than me, I skidded into, an, into a sideboard and sent an antique lazy Susan whirling into splinters. It was you who sought the blame. Met my parents' disbelieving stares with a jumbled, bold-faced tale about dusting, a dizzy spell, and didn't flinch. And when Butch began snapping back at me, you had him destroyed. Afternoons, alone in the dark flat, you made butter and sugar sandwiches. From newspaper, unfolded boats and hats. Taught me to trace, and for purposes, utterly up your dark sleeves, how to assemble a coffee pot. Later, we crossed the boulevard at the end of the street. The world you promised appeared to fashion itself largely from clothes. When I won a small scholarship to high school, you laughed and clapped your hands, percolated that now I could buy suits, sweaters, everything you'll ever want. Manners, too. That last morning, on the way to the hospital, knowing I wouldn't be allowed to visit, you were about to die. Who didn't say so? You dragged and wheezed up the stairs to my room. Which means I should have told this old woman I'm sorry. Yet she's already halfway down the block. I start to chase after her, carefully, shouting ahead so that my leather jacket and noisy boots won't spook her, until she spins, beads and cross-swinging, fists reaching up into the lights. Stay away from me, damn you. If you'd see where you're going, you wouldn't need to say you're sorry. Goddamn stupid kid. And this next poem is a, is a monologue. Um, among the, the many dubious claims that my character makes is that he's, he's the author of two songs. They're, they're in fact, by, by Lou Reed and Elvis Costello. Um, doubles. I fancy myself an enigma. On my best days, I manage to keep the world off guard. What I say does not follow from what I said yesterday. 
or their message in my clothes is somehow inconsistent with my face, a banker's striped suit under shades and a flashy pompadour. Around me, people must continually readjust. I force them always to approach me on my, on the, on my own terms. Only I keep changing those terms, keep shifting ground. Around me, the angle of incidence does not equal the angle of reflection. It's not that I have any secrets or a secret life. If anything, my life was left in the shell after the clams had been eaten. So I arranged to have many lives, many stories, all of them plausible taken one by one, but, but not quite adding up. It's a lot of work, yet the looks I get, the odd questions I'm asked, would repay any trouble. Sometimes when I'm very tired, I think, how nice it must be just to trot out this year's model and keep him there. But then I remember what I've gained, to be all men at once without being anyone. And I recall the danger, too. Staying put is like asking the world to do you in. But these aren't real issues anymore. All problems stopped right after my order was delivered from the Institute to huge bundles wrapped tight in black paper and cold to touch. My contact had insisted one to a customer, but I cheated a bit, claimed I was twins, identical twins, so he sent a pair. Unpacked, released from their tubs of dry ice, even as they stood frozen and immobile, I could see they were marvels whole self-sustaining universes of cells spun from two of mine, my equals down to the last hair and birthmark. And thawed, breathing freely, they lacked only a history. Such details are absorbed more easily than you'd think. Like me, they're fast studies. Hardly a week of pleasantly intense afternoons goes by, and provided with the necessary names, a few photographs, some not entirely congruent facts, and the basic rules of presentation. They seem more emphatically me than I've ever felt. I have great plans for us, one I'm coaching so that soon he'll be a star. Every night in clubs, he gets applause for singing my songs. When the smack begins to flow, then I really don't care anymore. Or every time I phone you, I just want to put you down. Exhilarating words, so angry and bitter, I'd be afraid to say them in real life. The others just received a second promotion at the bank, and there's talk he'll be a vice president before he's 40. But I don't have to do anything. I can read all night, listen to records, or drink, without worrying whether I'll be able to go to work in the morning. It doesn't matter if I get up, or what I eat, or how I look. I'm completely free. No matter what I do, my life goes on without me. Sometimes in disguise, I visit them to check up or keep in touch and request a song or a loan. They usually indulge me. Has any father ever been this proud? And always I'm amazed at how effortlessly they handle all that I've found impossible. Through long, distracting lunches with my mother, they smile and hold their tempers. They remember birthdays, keep appointments, pay bills. I'm never feeling well, but they're healthy. 
moderate habits, exercise, periodic trips to a doctor. In their hands, my life positively hums. Yes, things are looking up. I sense that everyone is talking about us. Words come back to me that the inevitable double sighting has taken place. Imagine trying to explain that. And in the paper, I see that one of us has broken off an engagement. That's the spirit. She's not good enough. Hold out for bigger stakes. I joke. What could make me happier? One of us must settle down soon and start a family. What we have is too rich, too perfect just to pass away. But I want the last word here, too. When I die, I've asked them to bury me quietly, anonymously, and go on as if nothing's happened. I'd like to end with three discrete excerpts from a, from a much longer poem. Um, it, it's a long poem called Evidence that is interrupted by three one-page elegies that have the titles, the subtitles Noon, Night, and Morning. Last Times, Night. Stayed away for days, unable to imagine, refusing to think about how easy it should be to get up shower, dress, and bus across town to watch an old man gaining years by the hour, shrinking, bottle-dripping nourishment, machines feeding poisons into swollen, wasted arms, twisting and rolling as he repeats rhythmically, dimly, God, oh, God, to the dropped ceiling. Stuck on the words, the way a falling climber bites the rope rock-chewed through miles above, invoking nothing. Just as on his last night, 3 a.m., the phone kept ringing and ringing. Could only be mother, alone at the hospital, dialing back as soon as she hangs up, crazy to hear herself say, if you want to see your father die, this is it. He stopped talking. Noon. Sharp, insistent ringing. The alarm? No. Who's at the door I drift to in a fog as my old teacher stumbles in? Last day of his visit. Always the worst. I got the papers, he says. Plus I see tea, head cheese, some books. Whatever it took to postpone his hangover. Watery eyes, sea blue and uncertain. Rolling walk like a sailor's. Up all night, I slept in when he went prowling at dawn. Voice hoarse and too intent on being understood. I've only had a few shandies, for Christ's sake. Don't think I do this all the time at home. I fill a kettle, take down plates, as he recites or invents items in the news. Telepathic twins separated at birth. Embarrassing celebrity deaths. Hijinks of animal mimicry. JFK alive in Geneva Hospital. Aphasic murders mother with one hand as the other struggles to stop him. Then more drinks, telephone calls, more Ramones, Beach Boys, show tunes. A nap before his long drive home. Day lost in a daze, like so many of our days, until the next time. Until, weeks later, just home from work, the phone ringing as I enter the apartment. 
I have very bad news. Mark was killed last night. Mark killed, I find myself thinking, in a bar, mugged, a knife, gunplay. Mark, come on. This is to West Side Story. Has to be one of his jokes. Who are you? Who put you up to this? As broken steering column, too much wine, stone wall, careen pass before crashing to a stop. Morning. First snow of the year, but late and light, blowing in the empty, sunny street. Unrelenting sun, bearing down through a high, round window, hacks out and trims a small stage, then pierces the bed like a spotlight, as last night's impatient forces, overdressed, under-rehearsed actors with names like Desire and Necessity, play themselves out. Her new curls, blonde streaks and patches, settling as she talks, eyes clouding over, then wetly brightening, as they watch him watching her do what she says she has to do. Her, we thought we could save each other. Head shaking no, her long arm cutting through his, but can't we still, until all clears. The storm's ending, whatever stirs and gusts, scatters over the same rolling, motionless drifts. But with nothing else to do or say, no audience but themselves, once more, for old time's sake, we can't. It would be too sad. I know. Every minute I'd be thinking, this is the last time. Thank you. novelist and short story writer Bobby Ann Mason will introduce Corey Jones who will read prose fiction. Thank you. Um, I've been reading Corey Jones's stories um, since I met her at a writers conference at Saranac Lake in the Adirondacks in 1977. She writes from that place, rural upstate New York, and even though I grew up in the South, I find her world very familiar to me, um, and I feel a strong affinity with the world she writes about. Um, I think we must have gone to the same grade school, it seems, um, a kind of world in which uh, um, girls get pregnant in the seventh grade and the boys drop out to go work at the, on the farm or the factory. Her characters tend to be people who are trapped in situations like that, but they protest them sometimes violently and always passionately. And the tension between their limitations and their desires I find very moving. Um, she writes a lot about young women who are attracted by danger and men who are numbed by the meaninglessness of their jobs but who insist on finding something to... to um, make them live. One of her most haunting stories is about a teenage runaway who finds her face on a milk carton 
she has gone to New York to become a prostitute and she lives out of a locker in the Port Authority and she's a missing child. And in Corey Jones's novella, which is published in Fiction Network, um, a checkout girl at Loblaws has a very grim future in the dark, cold North Country, but people say she looks like Patty Hearst. This is when Patty Hearst was on the loose. And that seems to be something to build her dreams on. I, I find that her stories about um, down-and-out truck drivers and waitresses and make me feel there's a whole world the reader can't afford to ignore. We have to know it and acknowledge it and care what happens to these people. And reading her stories, you get the feeling that life is very dangerous and, and the characters are, are leading life right on the edge and safe middle-class values just are not here. They don't count. I'd like to welcome a very good new writer, if I may say so. She's the Bruce Springsteen of the North Country, <laughs> Corey Jones. Just a bit higher. Let me see. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. Can you all hear me now? Okay. 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 Um, I'm just concerned about moving this too much because that's going to go dead. Okay. Is it okay now? I think all right. it's okay. Okay. Um, I guess I should have worn my bandana. Um, okay. I'm going to read a story called Southville. Southville is where I go after dark when everything slows down, when the walls in my place get smaller and I can smell the old smells, stale grease and dust. I take one or two pills and everything speeds up. I'll be flying all night, jangled up and ticking, floating on the edge of men. I cut through my backyard, through the alleyway by video tricks, over to the parking lot behind the all-night lanes. Then I'm in Southville, nothing ahead of me but lights of arcades and peep shows and bars, cheap theaters and pink neon glow. Around me are winos, fast kids, whiskey men who reach out for a feel. They want to own me, but they won't. They don't know how easy it is to break them, squeeze their moans from them as they move helpless above me in the dark. On the street, I look at their eyes. If they're sad, I leave them alone. I want a man who doesn't ask for anything. I know him when he looks through me and his eyes are right. I know those pale eyes, how a woman can never come back from them, the danger in them like a fist in the face. My place is on the boulevard that cuts through the middle of the city. My kitchen's yellow. The bathroom's pink, but the mirror's got a black plastic frame. When I look at myself, I drag a stool in from the kitchen. There's a crack in the top of the glass, and it hides my face from me. I run my hands over my body, my ribs and waist and hips. In my other room, I've got one bed, one chair. I found the chair with Jake one night in the northern outskirts, it was on the curb, on its side, red velvet, damp. Jake put it in the trunk, drove it back to my place. 
After he carried it in, he pulled me down to him and laughed. We were high, but I wouldn't let him stay with me. The only man who spends the night is Michael. He's older than me, and he's been with a lot of women. He was married, but his wife got out. He said they were living in some two-room place in Albany, near the Capitol. The day she took her things, he sat by the front window, staring. When I asked him what he was looking at, he said the gold dome up the hill. He said the snow, all the cold women shivering. He told me he wanted to grab each one by the hair and make her cry with him. When I thought about that, I looked at his eyes. They're gray. They keep changing. They're the eyes I see inside myself when I'm arching and blind in the dark. Dr. Coogan has his office on South Street, not far from video tricks. Not too many people come to see him anymore, but he doesn't seem to mind. Once I said I'd get him some patients down at the bus station at dawn, a few junkies, some winos with holes in their guts. All he did was laugh, but that's all right. He's not a bad man. Though I dropped out of school before I got my nurse's diploma, he hired me anyway, and he's never tried anything. I talk to his patients before he looks at them, ask them how they're feeling, what's wrong. I put my hand on their foreheads, sit with them and smile as they hold the thermometer in their mouths. After I take it out, I touch their foreheads again. I feel the heat of their skin, and I know they feel my hand. Sometimes they smile back. I keep my voice low. It's all right, I tell them. You're going to be all right. The phone in my place is pale yellow. It blends in with the wall. The men keep calling me, but every now and then it's my mother. She always talks a long time. I can't blame her, working in the rest home as she does, halfway to Scranton. Sometimes she gets on a bus and comes to visit me. I only went to see her once, maybe a month ago, a Sunday. We took a long walk feet bare in the cut grass. She asked, was I seeing anyone? When I said Jake's name, it sounded funny. I thought of his pills, his pink car, his face that's whiter than mine. When I turned to her, she pushed her hair back with her hand. I saw her short, uneven nails, polished red and chipped. I remembered her fixing my hair when I was little, guiding the brush down slowly, no pain. And I thought about Michael then. I wanted to tell her about Michael. Mama, I wanted to say, Mama, there's this man I keep going back to, this man who calls out my name in the dark. He calls it in a way I've never heard before. Mama, when he's in me tight and urgent, I can almost get to him, but I turn back, Mama, I turn back. I wanted to say this and a lot more I didn't have words for, but I knew she couldn't help me. I kept looking ahead, somewhere beyond the grass and the hills and the sky all pale. I saw how she was when my father died. It always comes back. How we both heard the gun go off, how she ran to the stairs, but I couldn't move. 
How later I found her sitting with him in blood, holding his hand, spatters of red all over the blue sweater he gave her. How she crossed herself with spider leg fingers over and over. How it took two cops to quiet her hand. Michael comes over once or twice a week. It's all I'll allow. He says he wants me for a long time. I don't know. Afterwards, sometimes he gets dressed and goes out. When I wait for him, I keep the light on. I see things on the wall, yellow circles, specks of gray and black. Most of the time, he stays and holds me. I met him one afternoon at Coogan's office. He was the last patient. He said his stomach was bad, all knots, pains like little fires. He told me he used to paint houses, but there wasn't much work these days. He said he didn't have much money now, but he still needed to paint. He was painting a picture, reds and blues and violets on an old brick wall, and they were beginning to swirl around till nothing made sense but the pain in his stomach. He told me this, and I saw his eyes, little yellow flecks in the gray. After Coogan got through with him, it was raining. Do you need a ride, Michael asked me. In his car, I watched the wipers make rivers of rain. I leaned back against the seat. In my place, he sat in the velvet chair and rubbed the arms. He asked where I got it. I didn't tell him about driving high around the north side of the city, about Jake. Someone threw it out, I said. When he told me lots of things got thrown out, I looked at his eyes again. His fingers made deep red shadows in the cloth. I went to him, closer. Does it hurt now, I asked. I brushed against his leg. Your stomach? No, he said. When he reached for me, he was slow, careful. I ran my fingers along the lines of his face. It doesn't hurt, he whispered. He didn't pull me down to him. He moved forward, buried his face against my waist. Honey is what a lot of them call me. Honey, says Michael. Honey, says Jake. Honey, honey, say the men in the Southville night. From a different time, I remember my mother, the way she spoke to me when I was a child. Honey, she used to say, it's time for school, it's time for church. I used to kneel beside her during mass, breathe in white flowers, white walls, high buzzy Latin of the priest. When she crossed herself, her nails were perfect and red. Honey, get your father some water, get your father a beer. Sometimes when drinking made him crazy, she sat in the hallway and cried. But other times she stayed up with him half the night, rinsing his face, him mumbling words that got all twisted together. Once I asked her why she bothered. Honey, she said, and her eyes were clear and dark. Honey, what's a woman for but to keep a man out of trouble? Now and then in the night, her words come back to me out of some misty nowhere place. Once I woke up crying, hearing them, honey, honey, but it was Michael saying it. He rubbed my back with his knuckles, hard and slow. It started to hurt. I kept staring at the sky, thick dawn coming into the room. 
It's always like this. He can't quite soothe me, ever. Smells of Michael keep coming back to me. I like the clean male heat of his body, his clothes. But even after he leaves, the air in my place is filled with him. It's too warm. When I call Jake, he says, give him two hours. I keep watching the clock. And then I'm back in Southville, down at the bus station, waiting. Right before the 902 leaves for Philly, his car shimmers larger and larger, pink in the South Street lights. Honey, he says, and I slip in beside him. I know how to look at him just right. I know that once Michael said my eyes were cold dark, cold hard. When he hands me the speed, I hold it up to him in the light. See this, I say, it's as black as my eyes. For a while, we drive up and down South Street, check out smooth-skinned kids, the lights, all the lights. When we start laughing again, Jake keeps going, past the factories, out almost into the night, up the ramp to the expressway, and we're jangling off down the fast lane, buzzing our pink glitter plane down the runway. Jake pushes the lights off. They can't see us. Flashes the high beams. They can't catch us. Lights everywhere. Little firefly specks darting, winking at us as we race off into the dark. Jake pulls me to him, knots my hair with his hand. Four in the morning, and we're parked on a hill above Southville, all cinders and metal and glass. In the valley below us, the factory lights are yellow dots. I'm cold, sweaty against him. We're coming down off the pills, and I want him to hold me. But he digs his elbows into my arms, covers my eyes with his hands. As we move faster, he takes his hands away and turns my head toward the window. Down at the bottom of the hill, black chimneys shoot up short flames. Beyond them is Southville, steady pink glow in the night. Look, he says to me, his arms are around me now and there's something like fear in his voice. I can't move. That's all anything is, he whispers, flames. Somewhere in me, he's deep and fast and the flames are slithering into faces. My father's face with her eyes shut. My, my mother's face with her eyes shut. My father's face and the spatters of blood. The faces of Coogan's patients. Jake's face, which I can't see. And my face in the mirror's cracked glass. And Michael's face. Michael's. It comes close, blurs, dissolves into black. No, Jake is moaning. No. He stops, shudders, collapses against me in the dark. At dawn, nothing has color. Not the buildings, not the pavement, not the sky. When Jake pulls up by my place to let me off, he sees him first. Over there, he says, some man's waiting for you. I move my head. Michael, he's on my stoop looking at the car. His mouth opens slightly, then closes. My fingers grip the door handle, thin and cold. Something makes me push till the door swings open. Jake grips my arm. He looks at me for a long time. Around his eyes, the skin is dry and lined. 
With both hands, he pushes me out of the car. I stumble onto the driveway. Cinders burn and scrape my palms. I hear a motor gunning, footsteps, tires screeching as Michael pulls me up. Somewhere I see Jake's car getting smaller, gray-pink in the dawn. And Michael's pulling me, pushing me away from him, pulling me back again. I keep breathing the smell of myself, pill sweat and stale sex. His fist flies out once, hard, catches my jaw, my lip. Then he's gone, running out into the empty boulevard, down towards South Street like Jake's car. I crawl over to the lawn. In the cool grass, I clench and unclench my fists. Later, I find my keys. Through the bathroom window, the morning sun is yellow and bright. With my fingers, I trace the black mirror frame over and over. Then I look into the glass. I see my eyes wide and dark. My lips look cold, almost blue. A trickle of blood runs down my chin. My mother comes to visit me again. Saturday evening, the 6.15 up from Scranton. She won't stay beyond Sunday morning. They'll miss me at the home, she'll say. I know she'll want me to laugh, so I'll do it. On Saturday night, I give her my bed. With a pillow and a blanket, I curl up on the floor. As I listen to the two of us breathe, I feel the wood cold and hard against my hips. And he comes to me in the dark, Michael does. He swirls around and around with all the women he's ever told me about. I make a face for every name. They moan low dove moans for him, and their lips are always wet. Toward morning, the room turns pale. My mother sleeps on her back the way she always did. With my eyes, I trace her nose and chin. Sunday morning before she leaves, we go for a walk down the boulevard. At the bakery, she puts her bag down and pays for two rolls. As we eat, we walk past the fire station, the newsstand, the church at the corner of South Street. We walk through bells and perfume, starch dresses and sweat. I see her reach with her hand to cross herself, then stop. She turns to me. You know, she says, I stopped going to church maybe a year ago. Across South Street, a man is standing still, staring. He moves on. These rituals, she says, there's nothing to them, nothing. He's thin and strong, and his hair is very black. As he moves towards Southville, something pulls in my belly. I remember his back the rising and falling of his shoulders. I was with him once, maybe last winter. My mother looks at me, touches my arm. I turn away. She holds on. You didn't sleep at all last night, she says, did you? Once last winter, I held him, made him gasp. His eyes opened and his face went soft. I'm squeezing something, Mama. I'm holding my mother's hand. Mama, I say. The bells in my ears get louder. I look around the corner down South Street, five blocks to the bus station 
One, two, three, four, five. The light stays yellow. There must be something wrong. Though we don't have to cross the street, we stand there staring, waiting for it to change. Now the dramatist John Guayer will introduce another dramatist, Ellen McLaughlin. I first became aware of Ellen McLaughlin in New Haven in 1978, uh, where we were having a, a writing seminar at Sabra College, and everybody had to, all the people who wanted to be in it had to uh, submit a writing sample. Great amount of people submitted, about 100 people submitted for some reason. There were 15 could be, only 15 would be picked. And uh, we were freshmen? That, yes, and this freshman, it was all seniors and juniors, except there was this one freshman who wrote a, submitted a story about a, uh, I remember about a young a woman waking up, uh, turned not into a, into a cockroach, but turned into Elizabeth Taylor. She looked like Elizabeth Taylor. Her name was Elizabeth Taylor. Everybody called her Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> I said, I think she'll be very, I think she'll light up this, uh, lighten up this seminar. And uh, she, the next year, uh, she was one of the uh, few undergraduates who were allowed to uh, take courses in the gra- drama school, yeah, the Yale Drama School, graduate playwriting courses. And uh, here it is eight years later. I mean, you would lose touch with Ellen. You'd say, whatever happened to Ellen, you'd learn that she either had been singing and working as a blues singer, then you'd find her working in some political campaign, but then bit by bit her plays keep being done in various parts of the country, in San Francisco or in Louisville, and there's a thing called the uh, Theater Communications Group, which is an alliance of over 240 regional theaters, and every year they pick approximately six uh, writers to uh, publish a a script in progress, and their plays in progress uh, series, just to make other theaters aware of them, and Ellen is uh, was one of the was one of her plays been recently been published uh, in this very most valuable series, and uh, I'm uh, a, a Penn. I'm very very glad that Penn is uh, is recognizing uh, dramatists in the theater, in, in the theater as uh, as part of literature, and I couldn't be happier to uh, introduce uh, Ellen McLaughlin, uh, uh, who will be reading with a, a partner. Uh, in this uh, play. Thank you very much. from a play called A Narrow Bed. 
The play is about the remnants of a commune which was formed in upstate New York in the late 60s and which at the present time has dwindled down to only three people. The three people now in their late 30s are Lucy and her husband, Willie, who is pre presently very ill in the hospital, and their friend, Megan. Uh, Megan's husband, John, who was the founder of the commune, has been missing in action for, in Vietnam for 15 years. This scene is about three quarters of the way through the play and takes place in the hospital cafeteria. Uh, my friend Deborah Monk, who will, will be playing Lucy, the part that she originated at Actors Theatre of Louisville, and I'll be reading Megan. The only other thing that you need to know is that uh, Lucy and Willie have a three-year-old son named Kyle. Lucy is alone in the cafeteria. She has a cup of tea. She is so exhausted that she has trouble concentrating on drinking the tea and tends to look out blankly at the cafeteria. She warms her hands on the cup, then slowly extracts the tea bag. She notices a fly. It makes a pass over the table, then lands apparently on her hand. She looks at it with interest, then gently lifts her finger. It flies around, then directly into her teacup. Lucy looks into the teacup, then laughs quietly. She takes a plastic coffee stirrer wearily and tries to help the fly out. This doesn't work. As she is engaged in this, Megan enters, finds Lucy, goes over to the table. What are you doing? Fly fell in the tea. Hadn't taken a sip yet. What's a fly doing anywhere? It's fucking freezing out. I thought they all died or went south. Not this one. This one found me. Dead. Stunned. He'll recover. <sighs> Lovely. You want another cup? Not really. You see him? He's asleep now. Right. Wow. What? I must really look awful. <laughs> Why? The way you're looking at me. You've looked better. God, I hope so. You're not going to drink that. It's all right. I'll get you another cup. It's all right. Stop it. What? Stop nursing me. I'm not the patient. Sit down. Don't be an asshole. I'm sorry. I'm just tired of being antiseptic. Flies are a delicacy in some countries. Uh-huh. He's not reviving. Why don't you eat him? All right, all right. How is it out? Just awful. Dirty snow, slush, people falling down. It's terrible. There she is. Who? The woman I always see in here, Mrs. Chen. Doesn't look Asian. No, that's what I call her. Wait. She does this jutting thing with her chin. Wait. <laughs> now she's not going to do it, of course. <laughs> 
she juts her chin out. You'll just have to take my word for it when she's alone, when she's thinking. Who do you think she's here for? I don't know, Lucy, who? I don't know either. I only see her in here. Maybe she works here. No, look at her. I think you're getting morbid. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Everybody here, look at him. Patients and the relatives, the real hardcore relatives, they all begin to look the same. It's in the eyes I figured out. With the patients, it's as if the, their eyes were turned inward, as if they were listening with every particle of their being to something deep, deep within themselves. And the relatives, they're listening too. They're maybe even listening a little bit harder because, see, they're trying to hear what's going on deep, deep inside someone else. And all they can do is wait and listen. I can sometimes even tell who it is they're waiting for. Parent, spouse, child. Well, actually, children and parents are pretty similar. A lot of guilt. Spouses. Anger. Bewilderment. You certainly got your categories neatly arranged. Oh, they overlap, but not as much as you think. Let's get out of here. There, she's doing it. <laughs> yep, aptly named. <laughs> I bet it's her father. Jesus, Lucy, come on. I'm not going back to the room yet. All right, we'll go for a walk. In the freezing rain? In the hallway, I don't care. Just a minute. Stay a minute. We don't have to talk about that. We, we don't have to talk at all. I'm sorry. I just switch into sardonic sometimes. It's fine if I'm alone, but it's awful for company. I'm not company. No, you're my best buddy. I feel like I'm drowning in it sometimes. Yeah. How's my boy? Good, really. Not bad. We had a d long discussion about yellow. He doesn't like it. His mother's child. Reminds him of Wee Wee. Well, it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's the color of something they gave him to wear. The team he's on. He's on a team? Well, I'm not, I'm not very clear on it. Something about flowers? Oh, yeah, it's not a team. They're all supposed to be flowers. It's some project. Kyle was supposed to choose a flower to be. He came home with this problem the other day. He couldn't choose a flower. He finally ran into my room and said he decided he was going to be a cauliflower. <laughs> well, now he's a daffodil. Poor thing, what a wimpy flower. I don't think he was into this whole flower thing to begin with. I don't think so either. But he's okay. I really like him. Is he worried? Yeah. <laughs> you don't lie to me much, do you? <laughs> Not often. How much do you tell him? Probably not enough. I say things like, Daddy's sick and I assume that covers it. He doesn't know about death yet. What's to know? Well, I'm not gonna bullshit him about it if it happens. He's not gonna wander around thinking his father's in the sky somewhere. 
I'm just going to say that his father's, that I don't know what happens, but that he's not coming home, that he's just, oh Christ, I have no idea what I would tell him. We don't even have to think about that yet. Willie wants to learn Italian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so far he's learned Roma non fu fatta in un giorno. Which means? Rome wasn't built in a day. Should come in handy. <laughs> he says, he says he thinks that's what the angels speak. Angels. He hears angels sometimes, and he thinks they're speaking Italian. So I'm teaching him Italian. Uh, the character of John, Megan's husband, appears periodically on stage and speaks to the audience. He is 22, the age that he was when he was last heard from and he speaks his letters home prior to his disappearance. John's only relationship is to the audience. The letters are interspersed all through the play and I'm gonna read three of them in the order that they appear. The stickiness of the paper will alert you to the fact that I am writing yet again from the bar, my table. It's close to the jukebox, but far enough away from the bar to be safe from the happy drunks who regularly fall backward in their stools. Lord, how we love that. That is one of the funniest things that happens here. Our mirth is boundless. The other thing we love is singing. I guess you could call it singing. Well, let's say screaming, along with the rock and roll on the jukebox. That's what we come here to do. In fact, I think that's what we're fighting the war for. That's what home really means to us. I can see from this table right now four guys playing their imaginary guitars. One is playing his M16. Three guys are going strictly for vocals, singing into their fists. And then there are, of course, the percussionists. That's all we ever wanted, really. That's the dream. We just wanted to be rock and roll stars. I know that's all I ever wanted. And here I am, 30,000 miles away, singing to you, oh baby, baby. Oh, I wish you could see us, babe. We're all such children. And we're all getting so very, very old. Maggie, there was this afternoon, 10 years ago, that I was watching my sister out of my bedroom window. She was in the back do uh, backyard doing her baton practice. She didn't know I was watching her. This was Tina, the one you haven't met. She was always bumping into things. She had the worst kind of braces at this point, the real railroad tracks. But she was doing this surprisingly well. It was one of those things. You see an entire person, 
you never laid eyes on all of a sudden, someone you never would have known existed. I mean, she was really good. She went for about 10 minutes without dropping at once. And then she kind of went for broke. She did a move I know she'd never done before. She threw the thing really high and it fell back down, glinting in the sun, turning in slow motion. And then she did it. She caught it behind her back and she was kneeling, one leg bent. There was this wonderful moment. She couldn't believe she'd actually done it. She stayed frozen on one knee, the baton clutched behind her back, and she just stared out at the hills for a while. Then she got up and went into the house. I never mentioned it. It just wouldn't have fit the way we were. I just forgot about it until now. I killed some people yesterday. It was just a matter of time until it happened and now it has. I know what I wanted to feel about it and that's not what I feel. It's something else. But I think about Tina holding the baton behind her back, looking out at the hills just before supper. All this talk about sending Americans to the moon, shit, they already did. Lots of us. Green cheese. Fuck the fucking space program. That's tiddlywinks. We're here already. They bring us here and then they leave. And we're supposed to collect moon heads, moon boots, moon tags, a moon leg or two. And the dust, they don't tell you it's red. We walk around on it, fucking treacherous red moon dust. Yeah, it looks like Earth, that's the thing. It looks kind of like Earth. So you walk around on it as if it was Earth, not moon dust, but then there's this click every once in a while. A click, and then a long, long silence while you look at your foot and you can't move it, and then Oh yes, you're spattered out in various pieces, out into space again, astronaut that you are, and you become planets of eye-tooth-toe, and you circle the Earth with all the other eye-tooth-toe planets that used to be friends of yours, and the Earth is turning beneath you, the farmers and fields and cars on the highway, but they don't know, and they're too far away to tell. And you couldn't tell them anyway, because you're dead. Thank you. Now, Anne Bernays, who has published uh, fiction, 
and is working on a memoir, is going to introduce a non-fiction writer, Marjorie Waters. And when uh, Miss Waters has finished, the formal part of the program is ended, and everyone is invited to stay unless he or she has a train or a plane or a bus and have some wine or soda and some conversation with our writers. And now, Ms. Bernay. No, I think it's just about right. Yeah. Uh, I've known Marjorie Waters for, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years now. Uh, and when my husband, Justin Kaplan, and I were editing a, our issue of Plowshares magazine, uh, biography, autobiography, and fiction, uh, I didn't ask her to submit anything, but this manuscript came in called Still Life, and it immediately went into the yes pile. There was no question about it. Uh, Marjorie is, uh, well, maybe she'll tell you a little bit about herself. She lives in Bedford, Massachusetts, with her husband and her child, and she is, has been so far a ghostwriter, that is, for a very uh, best-selling author of garden books. So this is a nice combination. Marjorie. Thanks very much, Anne. The piece I'm going to be reading is the piece from Plowshares, as you can tell. Um, it's the first piece I wrote in what has become a book-length memoir about my ancestors, about the family that I, some of the family I know and some of the family I never did know. Um, what interests me in putting together this memoir is the way in which all of us grow up with little bits and pieces and fragments of family history, and we make them make sense. And we make them make sense not only in terms of who those people were, but in terms of who we are, too. At least I did that. I don't know if you did it. This is called Still Life. The woman standing at the right is Alice Fitzsimmons Coffee. Those in the portrait with her knew her as Allie, but I think of her as Mama. Her black hair is pulled away from her face and secured at the crown of her head. Her mouth is straight, and her cheeks, even in this old sepia print, are visibly flushed. She is wearing a dark floor-length dress with high collar and long sleeves. At the neckline is a small pin, its center a diamond with tiny pearls set into gold filigree. I know this pin well. Mama gave it to my mother, who gave it to me, still in the velvet-lined box that held it when my grandfather bought it as a gift for his new wife. I never knew Mama. She grew old and died before I was born. At the time of this portrait, she is about the age that I am now, and like me, she has a new baby, her first a son. Mama's brother stands beside her, 
a young man with a soft, fleshy face and short hair, parted on one side and combed back from his forehead in a loose wave. He is wearing a black suit and vest, a white shirt with a stiff collar. I believe his name is George and that the young man to his right is Edward, but I am never certain which brother is which. They lived and worked together, bachelors all their lives, and they so often traveled as a pair in my mother's stories that their names are forever linked in my mind. In photographs of them in middle age, they are all together alike. George and Edward, Edward and George. But in this old print, the brothers are young still and altogether different from each other. The one I believe to be Edward is far handsomer. Though the two are dressed all but identically in dark suits, Edward's bow tie bears a straightforward white stripe. He wears his thick hair parted in the middle, a style that combines with the strength and symmetry of his features to make him seem perfectly sewn together. Edward looks fully at the camera's lens, the barest hint of a smile on his lips, while George is focused slightly to one side, wistful, distracted. Much as they matched in later life, as young men, the two brothers are quiet opposites, candor and avoidance, resolution and doubt. Sitting in front of Edward is his sister, Anna Fitzsimmons, at around the age of 30. Of all these faces, hers is the strongest, with her eyes locked hard on the camera and her chin raised. She leans forward slightly, as if she were holding steady against an unseen wind. She wears a dark dress that covers all but hands and head. Over her left breast, is pinned a gold watch. Half a century later, when adults thought I was asleep, I often crept to my mother's bureau, to the drawer where she kept old family treasures, and fingered this watch in the darkness. Sometimes I held the cool, round thing pressed in my hands and sat on the floor, watching shadows move across the wallpaper as cars drove by smooth and slow. And sometimes I opened the hinged doors of the watch and stared at the, at the works in the dim light. I wound that watch and shook it, but I never made it tick, not even when I used a pencil point to urge the tiny wheels to life. When Anna was nearly 40, she married a man named Horace, who was then over 70, her father disapproved, everyone disapproved, first of the marriage, then of the birth of two sons. But Horace was more than 90 when he died, and he saw both boys into manhood. Anna lived another 20 years without him, and it was during this time that I knew her. I was very young, and Anna, I knew her as Auntie, was a tiny old woman, pale as chalk. She still lived in the house that she and Horace had shared as newlyweds, and I visited her there frequently with my mother. I would sit on one of Auntie's ancient chairs and listen silently while the women talked and laughed together, as if there were nothing to be afraid of in that house. Sometimes I would walk back to the kitchen to stare at the dented tin cup 
that hung by its handle over the sink. I imagined Auntie's thin lips, drinking, and frail as she was, I could never account for the battered condition of that cup. At the far right, sitting in front of Mama, is her father, Thomas Fitzsimmons, a slim, handsome man with a white mustache and a rim of soft white hair around his head. There is among the fat family photographs only one other of Thomas, a head and shoulders miniature framed in gilded tin. It is one of thousands of such photographs taken of returning Union soldiers. As a young man, his hair was full and dark, but the faces in the two photographs are so much alike that it seems that half of his lifetime passed in a blink. In this group portrait, Thomas sits in a wicker chair that seems too large for him. He looks dry and thin and ready to shatter. To his right is his wife, Rose Clark Fitzsimmons. She is the portrait's center and the reason it exists. Her dress is dark over her large frame, her mouth drawn downward, her eyes focused into a distance only she can see. She is dying. This portrait is the last record of her life. Rose Clark, my great-grandmother, was born in Ireland and was still a small child when famine claimed her parents and orphaned her and her two older brothers. The children were taken in by neighbors, a family named Gilmore, and they came with them to the small town in upstate New York where Rose would spend her life and where her children and her children's children, every generation until my own, would spend theirs. Rose remained with her adopted family until 1865, when she married a former soldier with a dark mustache. They bought a house, raised four children, and gathered for this farewell portrait when Rose Clark Fitzsimmons was not yet 60. I was a child when I saw this photograph for the first time. It was one of dozens my mother kept in a box on a shelf. One day she showed them to me in all their disarray, infants of one generation face to face with their own grandchildren, everyone at every age thrown together in a jumble like the memories of a lifetime. She spread them out on her bed and we looked at them one by one. She had stories for all of them. She filled the day with Mama and George and Auntie and the rest. The photographs are mine now. I keep them in a box on a shelf, all in a jumble. Except for this fine old portrait, which hangs over my desk where I can see it as I work. I often find myself watching these faces. I can feel their held breath, the warmth of their skin, the softness of the fabric they wear. And I can see them all together that morning hear their footsteps in the small clabbered house on the corner. Grown sons and daughters, once again in their childhood rooms, wordlessly dress in dark clothes, brush their hair. Rose in a white cotton sleeping gown takes Thomas's arm as she rises from her bed. Alice and Anna come into the room to help her dress. 
Downstairs, George and Edward, ready too soon, wait with their hands in their pockets and look out separate windows. The carriage comes. The boys help their mother into the clear morning air. The ride down Bridge Street is slow and easy. The horse kept to a walk. In the studio, Rose is seated first. She smooths the folds of her skirt as the others take their places around her. They raise their faces to the camera's eye and draw close together, shoulder to shoulder and arm to arm. Anna rests her hand on her mother's knee. They are ready. The shutter moves and holds them in the moment when the family is whole and woven together by touch. Thank you.